Have you ever thought about the power of a story? Think of the story you tell yourself. Who you are. Where you come from. Who you hope to be. How do you think of yourself? How do you think of others in your story? Are there any obvious heroes or villains? What are the joyful or tragic chapters of your life? Who are you because of your story? Stories are certainly powerful. They shape our perception of reality. They provide answers to questions of identity and belonging. And sometimes they take liberties with the facts. You're like me, you grew up with this promise, the great proverb of America. If you only worked hard and made the right life choices, you'd be successful. And in being successful, you would find happiness. Yet for all the material wealth Americans enjoy, we certainly don't seem to be any happier for it. A Gallup poll released in January showed increased dissatisfaction over many areas of American life. And not just over the last two years, over the last 20 years, there's been a general trend downward. A CDC study reported that the percentage of Americans using antidepressants increased significantly in the past decade, especially among women. And as for men, the National Institutes of Mental Health reported a 21% increase in suicide from 1999 to the present day. It's pretty sobering. And by the way, I'm linking all these studies online so you know I'm not just pulling the numbers out of nowhere. These are real studies. For so many, that we've all experienced the increasing incivility and polarization of our great nation. For so many, the American dream has turned into a nightmare. So what is left when the story we've heard all our lives turns out to be incomplete at best, or even downright false? What kind of story gives life to us, to our community, and to our world? That's what the faithful of Corinth were trying to discover. Paul had come to them, telling them a new story. A story where social status, personal wealth, giftedness, or religious identity didn't matter as much as the love of God for them. Where wisdom and eloquence took a back seat to the love they showed other followers of Jesus. Where Jesus Christ had died for them and put to death the old life-denying realities, the old lies that they told, told themselves. Moreover, Paul gave them this life-giving story, this life-giving, changing gospel, free of charge. He didn't do what the mystery religions of the day did. Religious hucksters were around back then, too. Sometimes things don't change. But Paul didn't charge a penny for the gospel. He spoke openly to them. He commissioned elders among them to serve. He equipped them to be a blessing to their neighbors and to the world. He gave them the gospel dream. But something happened. 
Something happened between Paul's first and second letters. In our Bible study on Monday, Pastor Rawl said that the Lord loveth the grumpy givers just as much as the cheerful ones. I suppose that's a good thing and maybe with some small consolation for Paul because there were a lot of grumpy people by the time Paul wrote this part of 2 Corinthians. There had been a major falling out between Paul and the community. Other itinerant preachers whom Paul call, calls sarcastically super apostles showed up in Corinth, undermining Paul's authority to preach and to teach. The church at Corinth, you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, was already mired in their own internal divisions. They were troubled by immoral behavior among their members and exclusionary social practices. It's not too far of a stretch to suppose that some members had gotten a bit resentful of Paul. They may not have cared for what he had to say about their own misuses of gospel freedom, and they especially may not have cared for his continual reminders about the collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Notice how he starts this section. There's no need for me to write to you. Well, there's obviously a need for him to write to them, but he needs to do it in such a way that it's gentle, right? That it supposes that they already know the importance of this. Led to doubt by these super apostles, some may have suspected that Paul was lining his pockets under the pretense of taking this collection. Despite their, the facts, the story about Paul changed. From apostle of Jesus Christ to religious huckster, the gospel dream seemed to be in jeopardy. So Paul reframes the dream for them. He uses an agricultural metaphor, one rooted in Jesus' own words, both in our gospel reading today from Luke's gospel and from the parable of the sower. This collection for the saints in Jerusalem is a sowing of seed for a rich harvest in the gospel. But it isn't a sowing like the prosperity preachers of our day preach it. Not at all. You've all heard them on TV. They would say that if you give your seed money to the church, You'll get back a material harvest for yourself. You'll live your best life now. Such preaching is a betrayal of the gospel because it imagines God to be nothing more than a magic money machine. Only for the individual. There's no love, there's no relationship, there's no beloved community, and there's no salvation in such a God. No, Paul instead preaches the God of Jesus Christ, the Father of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this as a participation in and an expression of God's love for the world, for the world, a love that was willing to give everything for its salvation. The fruits of this harvest are far more precious than mere money, far more precious than money. There is growth in the spirit and in the Spirit's fruits among the beloved community, among the church, among us. In Galatians, Paul speaks of the fruits of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We need a whole lot more of those in the world today. 
God is always willing and ready to give to us, to give us these gifts. Lutherans believe that God opens our hearts first. God is the first mover. We don't give in order to receive. It's precisely backwards. We give because we have already received. And we continue to receive from God. When Maya is baptized in just a few minutes, she will receive the love of Christ as he washes her, claims her, and calls her his own. When the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit come out of my mouth, know that it is Christ himself speaking those words through me. The fruits of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil come to Maya today as she is raised up a new child of God. Just as we who are baptized are raised up every day, we are given a new life every single day of our lives. And we will receive the fullness of that life in the age to come. The gospel dream, the dream of a new life, of the love of God imbued in our hearts, is ours. And that dream doesn't remain just a dream. It doesn't just remain ours. It's not about the individual. When we are generous, whether with our money, our time, or our attention, Attention is an increasingly rare commodity these days. That dream becomes a reality. We live out that dream, the new story that totally reorients and reframes who we are and whose we are. We become builders, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, on the foundation that is Christ. Let that dream become a reality in you today. Let it become a reality here at Shalom, in Alexandria, in our nation, and in the world. Let us be generous people, not just in our financial resources, but in our very being, in all aspects of our lives. As Christ has given, so we give. God bless us all and make the harvest we receive in the gospel, in the fruits of the Spirit, a mighty one indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.